Well, I'm really glad you're here this morning, and uh, I've already heard some harrowing tales about how you got here, so thank you for making that effort. You know, that as we get ready to wrap up this series in a couple of weeks on Joseph, the theme of the series is so obvious, and we've been talking about it as a mantra over the, the weeks that we've been studying Joseph, but the theme really is God's preservation of his people, God saving Israel, God being faithful to Israel, being good to his word and his promises so that Messiah, Jesus Christ, could come into the world. Because that was the promise that God gave to Abraham. And in this section, we're going to see the glory and faithfulness of God work itself out in how he planted a man, the perfect man for the time, in order to save his people. And I think this morning we're going to marvel at the work of Joseph and how skilled he was. But Joseph isn't the star of the story. God is the star of the story. And so this morning I want you to immerse yourself in the faithfulness and glory of God. And so that when you are praying daily, that a child would come to know Christ and you wonder if God's really working when you desperately need a job, when, when you're longing for a spouse and you're watching your friends get married, or you can't get pregnant, you're dying of loneliness, you're hopelessly addicted, whatever might be going on in your life, when we understand the glory of God and the faithfulness of God, then we can trust God and we can fully submit ourselves to God. And so the goal this morning isn't to highlight Joseph, it's to highlight God's majesty in how he put Joseph where he is. And so even in the dark, shameful places of your life, you can give that to God and you can trust him. And so this is going to be a great morning. Now, before we dive into the text, let me just get you updated quickly on where exactly we are as we're entering chapter 47. We're going to focus in the mid-portion of the chapter. But what's going on here in this chapter is that in verse 6 we see that Israel is being given land in Egypt. This is an amazing thing. And sometimes we take this part of the story for granted. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my flock. And so that in itself just points out the glory of God because... Not only are they getting the best land, and this is the hated Jews, the abomination to the Egyptians, but Pharaoh's trusting his livestock to them. Now, Goshen now, if you looked on a map, all you'd see is desert. It's not where you would want to live. But then it was the best slice of land in Egypt. It was between the capital city and the Nile. It was rich. It was fertile. And somehow... In God's great glory and majesty, he gave Israel not only a place in Egypt, but the best place in Egypt. And then in verse 9, if we moved ahead, we'll see Jacob with Pharaoh. And this is also really interesting because here you have the patriarch, the one who God had reiterated his promises to. He's face to face with Pharaoh. Because God had done a work, he put Joseph there. Joseph had earned favor. But these troubling words come out of Jacob's mouth. He said, few and evil have been the days 
and years of my life. He was 130 years old. Yet he had been through so much. Trouble had followed him. Some of his own making, for sure. But now we'll see him bless Pharaoh. And where we catch up to the narrative is where Israel has planted exactly where God wanted them to be. He's got the man in charge that he needed to have. He's preserving his people so that Jesus could come into the world. And so as we watch this all play out, it's the same God with the same power and the same redemptive plan. And so we can trust him with our lives, too. So now I want you to open your Bibles, if you would. And we're going to start in verse 13 of Genesis 47. This is page number 41. If you want to use that Bible on the pew rack in front of you. You can also hop on the app that Neil was talking about. and We've got the text there. We've got study notes there. You can punch in notes as I go along and bring it home with you. 47, beginning in verse 13. So this chapter shows Pharaoh giving land to Israel. It shows God preserving Israel. It shows his sovereignty, his power, his faithfulness. And as the famine has grown... So has the urgency of the moment. This is now the second year of the famine. This is why it's repeated here. And the people have become dependent on the government, not in a bad way, but in a way that they could survive. And so the scene is set here in verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And so God is using this backdrop in order to glorify himself. And sometimes we look and we, I don't know how many of us have really experienced a famine. But I was trying to think through, you know, 20th century equivalents in America. I couldn't really think of anything that was close. Maybe the Depression. Maybe if you went back and looked at the Dust Bowl, those kinds of things. But this was a region-wide famine. And it was costing people and they were struggling It was long and it was severe. And so that's the backdrop that God uses in order to glorify himself. A severe famine. Now, remember that when we began this journey. Way back when Joseph was forgotten and then was summoned by Pharaoh out of prison, he interpreted a dream for Pharaoh. And if we look back, here's that interpretation in Genesis 41. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. So this was this wasn't just something that surprised God. This is an interpretation that Joseph gave Pharaoh Pharaoh was so impressed with this man that he said, this guy's so wise, I'm going to let him run my country so that we can have food when this actually happens. And none of this happens by accident. And isn't it interesting in our own lives how God uses desert, how God uses famine, how God uses darkness in order to glorify himself. It is many times through suffering that God reveals himself In deeper ways. It is many times 
when we don't think we can even experience God. We're wondering, where is God? And we go through these seasons of spiritual deserts, but then God reveals himself and we find ourselves drawn to him in new ways, deeper ways. Susie and Perry shared this morning what happened when God begins to glorify himself is we begin to deepen. We begin to become more authentic. But many times the backdrop is a famine in our lives. And that's what he's using here in Egypt. He's using the backdrop of a famine. But the real point that the text makes today is this. God's faithfulness and glory is seen through the wisdom of God's preserver. He placed Joseph where Joseph needed to be. Joseph was incredibly skilled and he did an amazing work, and it was all God that put him there. Let's take a look at, the, at how this tracks without reading every verse. If you look in verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the nation's resources and brought them into one central location. He believed the dream, he believed what God had for him, and he did what he needed to do. In verses 15 through 17, the people ran out of money. And they came looking for help. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for their livestock. He preserved them through that trade. And then a year later, in verses 18 through 23, the famine is still on. They had no more money. So they came to Joseph, and this time they traded land for seed. And then they could take that seed, and they planted, and they were able to sustain themselves. And then in 24, Joseph installed the first tax and asked for one-fifth of their earnings. This is not just detail. This is God's preservation of Egypt and then, conversely, Israel. Because what's happening here is Joseph is dealing wisely with the people. No doubt when the famine was over, he restored them. But he allowed them to survive in the meantime. And liberal theologians look at this and they say, well, he's an oppressor. You know, here they are starving to death and he's taking one fifth from them. But what they fail to understand and realize is that Joseph could have taken everything. Joseph had the food. He was in control. He was absolutely in power. But he didn't. In fact, the people, if you look at verse 25, saw Joseph as a savior And a preserver. And they said in 25, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. You have saved our lives. Joseph preserves life. Remember when he said, I have gone before you to preserve life. God is... Preserving life, and he's preserving the line for Messiah to come into the world through Joseph. And Joseph's skill helped get him there. Now, against the backdrop of the famine, we see the wisdom of God's preserver, and then we see Israel prosper. Look at 27. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So, Egypt didn't just thrive. It wasn't just Egypt. It was Israel, Israel now began to thrive, began to multiply. This was the plan all along. We had Joseph's clan was Israel, is Israel. And we see them migrate to Egypt, 70 people, 
that we're going to make up a great nation. And if you would have been there to see this ragtag group probably moving through the desert, you would have said, that's the promised nation? Yes. Because God got them into a place that was safe, fertile, and now they began to multiply. And the motif of multiplying in Scripture is always tied to a blessing. In Genesis 1.22, he asked Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And so that's what's happening here. Israel is becoming a great nation. Now, this is a promise that God had given to Abraham many years before. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 in Genesis 12, it's go, go, go out. I will give you land. I'll give you your seed will birth Messiah. You'll be a blessing to the nations. You're going to birth a great nation. Genesis 15. Look at the stars. You can't count them. So will your descendants be. And then before Jacob enters Egypt, God reiterates the promise to Jacob that I am making of you a great nation. God is preserving his people. Why? So that Jesus could come and save the world. I'm really struck as I read through the Old Testament. I'm struck by the the high stakes that are involved here. There, there is so much going on in the Old Testament, and we, we don't teach our children well. We teach them stories. And, and the stories then take on kind of a life of their own. But the, the stream or the thread that runs through the Old Testament is preserving Israel for Messiah to come. The prophets were all about Messiah. Jesus needed to come. The world needed to be saved. And here's the promise that he reiterated to Jacob. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I'm struck by the language there. I will make you into a great nation. Not I'm going to provide a circumstance for you to become a great nation. I'm going to help you grow. No, I'm going to make you a great nation. I am sovereign. These are my promises. My glory is going to surround you and you're going to become the nation that I want you to be. Because my son needs to come. So that's happening right now. There is incredible sovereignty, power going on. Joseph is is leading. He's an incredible administrator. But here's what I really want to focus on is the timeless truth that for our own lives that God's faithfulness is on display. It's not just 3,000 years ago. It's now. Because God is all about preservation. God is all about redemption. God is all about bringing people to himself. And this whole story is about redemption. It's about reconciliation. It's about God reaching out and saying, I want you to be with me to experience my glory. But the problem we have many times when we're talking about the glory of God is how do you even define the glory of God? I mean, we can get our minds around power. We can kind of understand that. We can understand faithfulness, walking alongside, being true to your promises. But but God's glory. Well, John Piper took a stab at it, and here's what he came up with. God's glory is the infinite beauty and greatness 
of God's manifold perfections. The infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. And he said the reason he chose the word manifold is because God's perfections are multiple. They are endless. Because God is true. He's holy. He's pure. God is all that is good in the universe. So why do we want to glorify God? Why does God want to be glorified? It's so that people will turn their eyes to the one that can save them. Will turn their eyes to the one that is the best thing. In a world of corruption and darkness, violence, poverty, injustice, God is pure and holy. So he desires that we turn our eyes to him and that we revel in his glory so that we then can revel in Christ who came as the exact radiance of the glory of God according to Hebrews 1.3. Because the Bible says so clearly that Jesus came to save a lost world. And what's so fascinating about Scripture is as we read the Bible through and we hear the gospel message It was all of this that we're talking about today that set the stage. And so God had to continue that line through Jacob. And then now a new deliverer would come on the scene named Moses after the people multiplied and went into slavery. And you can see this continual idea of a deliverer. And this is what Jesus came into the world to do, to save people, to to help them to understand and become part of the family of God. This is what Billy Graham preached his whole life. Billy Graham was gifted. He was a gifted communicator. He was a man of upright integrity. But his, his preaching was all about the gospel. He never wavered in that. If you go back and you watch a sermon, it's the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And what he did simply each time in the context of wherever he was preaching was, you have a sin problem. Here's what it looks like. Here's the answer to the sin problem, which is Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross, that he has died for you and that you can be forgiven of all of your sin. And then he always said, and now you can make a decision to follow Christ. And then he said, here's what would happen if you make that decision. And then they would play that song. You know, and they would all come down thousands. When he passed away, I was struck by how many people through social media and other ways of communicating said, I accepted Christ at a crusade. I had a family member who accepted Christ at a crusade. On and on and on it went. The gospel isn't complicated. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save the world. If you trust him, believe in him, you can have eternal life. But it was all being set here. This is why God's glory is so incredible to behold. He is working within sinfulness and circumstances that he created in order to glorify himself. And so this Bible that we have in front of us is trustworthy and it's true. And we too can be preserved just like Israel through the glory of God. So you say, how can I be preserved? I mean, I'm already old. I'm going to preserve me. That's being a bad term. You know, it sounds like we're in a jar or something, you know, and you're squeezing the thing in there. But, but the preservation of his people is very important. And so for us, what does that look like? 
I think of when we look toward death and we wonder, how can our lives be so short? And we have trepidation and wondering what's going to happen next. We can trust that God will preserve us in death as his children and we will spend forever with him. Ephesians makes it very clear. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, preserved by God. We can see that when we go to work tomorrow, God will give us the words to say to our colleagues. God will help us to understand how to witness, how to be a light. When we put our children to bed, what do we say? How do we pray? God will help us. He'll preserve his family. He'll preserve his people. When we're dealing with bullies or we're dealing with abuse or we're dealing with the temptation of the drug trade, we can say, God will preserve me if I just walk faithfully with him because of his power. So it really does enter our lives. But I just want to talk to you, the skeptic, for a moment. And I, I've read the statistics, and if you look in this room right now, there's not a lot of people here because of the snow, but 20% of you don't know Christ. So I'm going to talk to you right now. And you see that verse that's placed there, that Jesus Christ is the gospel. Thus it is written that, the, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, his name, to all nations. This is the gospel right here. And so I'm, I'm going to say to you, skeptic, I'm going to say to you, non-believer, that God has preserved this moment in time and has brought you here to listen to the gospel right now. If, if God can place Joseph in Egypt in order to preserve his people, then he certainly has brought you here at this moment to be confronted by the fact that Jesus wants to save you. So what's holding you back? Why is it difficult for you to say yes to Christ? Is it pride? Is it uncertainty? Is it that fear that somehow he's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do? He's going to ask you to change your life in a way that you really aren't interested in that? Or you just think it's all nonsense? But I'm here to tell you right now that the gospel is in front of you and you have a decision to make. The gospel is simple. Deciding to follow Jesus' heart. And so if you're willing this morning to just acknowledge the fact that Jesus is that Messiah that came from the line of Abraham, and if you're willing to acknowledge that you have a sin problem, that you know, you've, you know the darkness of your own heart, or at least you've seen some of your actions that hurt other people, and if you're willing to say that, yes, Jesus, I know you can forgive me for my sin because you died on the cross. Yes, would you please forgive me? I want to follow you. Then you have become a member of the family of God. And you will be immersed forever in the glory of God. In Revelation, in 20, Revelation 21, I'm going to preach on this on Easter. There's just this incredible description of what it will be like to be in the presence of God and the Lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, there are angels worshiping, will be worshiping. It'll be, a, it'll be incredible. But you need to be in the family of God. And Ridgewood Church, we need to be about the business of offering the gospel to our community. We need to be about the business of being light and love and connecting with people. 
The reason it was important that Susie and Perry were up here today was because they are just like you and me. They have a heart for people. They're allowing God to use them. And God is using them in an incredible way. And so as we form community groups and as we look to our future, even as we have our discussion tonight about what our building is going to look like and how can it be used for ministry, keep in mind that we are on a mission to reconcile people to God so they can experience his glory. It's not about us. And that's why I want you to take a minute right now. Neil talked about this before. This is the Pray for Five card. If you don't have one, just sit silently and think about who we'd want to put in these blanks. You can fill one out after service. But this prayer is that you see on the left that God would soften hearts, that their hearts would be enlightened, that they would see Jesus as the way. These are five people that you want to find Christ. And I would say five people that are in your sphere of influence so that you can have an opportunity to obey God and share the gospel. So just take about a minute and just fill in some names. And then I'll finish with some closing comments. I think there'll be some pens in front of you or some pencils. And I'll just give you a minute to go ahead and do that. God, before I continue, I just want to stop for a moment as these names are being placed on these cards. Lord, I pray for each name that's being written down right now. I pray for the person that's writing the names down. God, I pray that you would make a connection there, a saving connection. God, I pray that these people that are being written down would come to know you in a new and fresh way or for the first time. And I pray, God, that we will hear stories of redemption Stories of reconciliation, stories of people stepping into your glory for the first time. And God, I just pray that we would be baptizing many because of the names that are being written down. And that many will come to know you as Savior. God, will you please do that? In Jesus' name, please do that. So, as we close the, this section of the narrative this morning, I just want to look at Jacob briefly because Jacob is kind of the, the, the bow on the end here. He's near death. In these last three verses, verses, he's with Joseph. He's the one that migrated to Egypt last. He's the one that reconciled last. But he is the patriarch through whom God will continue the work. And he had experienced the faithfulness of God. Look at verses 29 through 31. And when the time drew near that Israel must die... He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. Now that sounds weird in our culture, but what they're doing here is a solemn oath. And so what Jacob is asking Joseph to do, Joseph is going to say yes, and Joseph has solemnly given his word that it will happen. And promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. 
And he, Joseph, answered, I will do as you've said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And so, as this section wraps up, we see this truth, that God's glory and faithfulness allow for the fulfillment of promises made to Israel. And here's what I mean by that. Here's a patriarch who will now follow in the paths of the patriarchs that have already died. And they're not burying anybody in Egypt. They're taking everybody, including Joseph, soon. They're taking all of them to Canaan, to Hebron, which is now Hebron. And they're being buried in a cave because that's where Israel's going to end up. And so even through a moment like this, we can see the glory and faithfulness of God because Jacob's saying, don't bury me here. This isn't my homeland. This isn't my future. Bury me in Egypt. And then amazingly, Pharaoh lets him do it. And so this section is amazing because we see the faithfulness in choosing Joseph, this incredible administrator. He puts Israel in this new home. Jacob is now at his death, at his side, and we see clearly that the future for Israel is in Canaan. Now that's faithfulness. That's sovereignty. That's power. You can trust that power in your own life. You can trust that God is sovereign. And I know, sometimes I walk around the house and it just seems like darkness. Like nothing is coming together. That grief won't go away. That life hurts just keep coming. But I keep going back to the promises of God. And right now, you're looking and reading a promise of God. Jesus is here. He's come. He's alive. He wants to minister to you in your heart. You just have to open yourself up to Him. And he will go into these deep places of your heart and soul that you don't, haven't told anyone about. And he can free you. And more importantly, he can save you. So I praise God this morning for the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the faithfulness of God. Let me pray, and then we're going to celebrate that in song. God, we just praise you and thank you for being who you are. The words to describe you are difficult to come by, but we can just look at Scripture and we can see there your actions that help us to understand you more. So God, help us never to take your glory lightly. Help us never, ever to assume you're like us, because you're not. You're far above us. Your plan is your plan, not our plan. But there's comfort in that. And God, we know that the writers of Scripture always mentioned your sovereignty in regards to comfort and blessing. So please teach us to open our hearts up to you and your plan, your love, your faithfulness, and your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.